Affordable housing saved from the wrecking ball. Well, I'm very grateful that the fear has been replaced with hope, stability, and a guarantee of affordable housing. How the province is spending millions to preserve co-ops like this one and the residents who live there. A shocking collision in the driveway. I got pinned between car, table and garage door. The injuries that prevent her from working and why she's still in a fight with ICBC for fair compensation. And a failed pilot delaying his departure. They claim that you won't leave your suite. A flight school dropout who refuses to leave the dormitory and how the case is now navigating through court. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Residents of two Coquitlam housing co-ops are breathing a sigh of relief tonight, knowing they won't have to move. The two complexes are the first properties to be acquired under the provincial government's new rental protection fund. And as Richard Zussman reports, the deal is just the beginning of the province's bid to save affordable housing. When the 41-year lease for the Tri-Branch Co-op in Coquitlam ran out in 2022, there was a sense of dread. Worry, those living here would have nowhere else to go. But now, there's hope. If you were to have all those people on the street, when we already have a catastrophic situation with our housing crisis, as the president of the co-op, I don't know how I could live with myself, truthfully. Jules Crestman lives in one of the 290 co-op affordable housing units in Coquitlam, now saved. Part of the first acquisition using BC's Rental Protection Fund. I'm very grateful that the fear has been replaced with hope, stability, and a guarantee of affordable housing for all these people. Through the fund, the province attempting to match up non-profits with existing rental properties, rather than have them end up in the hand of private developers or demolished. When you're in a housing crisis, the first thing you need to do to get out of it is to stop digging. We cannot afford to lose affordable rental housing like this building. There are 95 projects province-wide the Rent Protection Fund is looking at. There's funding in place for 700 units, including these Coquitlam projects. But the hope is more will get funding. We have a pipeline actively of uh, over 2,000 at this point. So those are properties that are being brought forward by pre-qualified applicants through the fund. The Protection Fund only covers off a small portion of the demand when it comes to affordable rentals in this province. And experts say this government needs to do a much better job to ensure that there are properties available that are affordable. This rental protection fund is a step towards protecting some of these rental protection units, but then at the same time, we still need to build new units, new rental units, but then those new rental units, it is really hard to have that affordable. Timing, also a challenge, with this co-op taking nearly two years to sort out, nowhere near keeping up with the pace of the housing crisis. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Two teenagers have been arrested in connection with a high-profile shooting in South Surrey last week. In the early morning hours of last Thursday, February 1st, more than a dozen shots were fired at this home on 154th Street near 28th Avenue. The home was rented by an associate of murdered Sikh activist Hardeep Singh Nijar. RCMP now say a search warrant was executed on a Surrey home this past Tuesday. And two 16-year-old boys were arrested. Three firearms and several electronic devices were seized.
We are aware of the information that was being uh, circulated on media in regards to this shooting. The motive of this shooting is still undetermined. Our investigative team is working toward to find out why this shooting happened and why this residence was targeted. The two teens who've been released without conditions are facing possible charges of careless use of a firearm and discharging a firearm with intent. A disturbing attack near Vancouver Provincial Court last week has led to some major changes in the protection of Crown prosecutors. Romina Dea has the latest. The Crown prosecutor is still recovering. She has not returned to work after Friday's vicious attack. The private security firm now terminated, says the BC Prosecution Service. Provincial court staff, including Crown Counsel at 222 Main Street, are being escorted to and from their vehicles by armed sheriffs. Crown also now using other in-house security personnel. The BC Sheriff Service Safe Walk program, which has been in effect for over a year, was not used by the Crown prosecutor who was attacked last week, even though it was available to her. She was being escorted from a parkade to the courthouse by an unarmed private security guard. When she was randomly punched in the face, there was a lot of blood. She was taken to hospital. The suspect then attacked another woman nearby. The private security company, Garda Canada, did not answer any of our questions. 27-year-old Kenyon Thomas Lavely has been charged with assault and assault causing bodily harm. The association, representing hundreds of Crown lawyers in the province, says he met with the Attorney General via phone on Wednesday. It's a first step. Uh, we obviously need to have continue to have conversations. I understand that we will be having more conversations with the Attorney General. Um, and other people involved in the ministry and potentially other stakeholders. We welcome that. Um, we need to continue this dialogue um, and we need to ha have more frequent meetings so that we can move something forward. The association suggesting relocating the courthouse to a safer neighbourhood for everyone. Premier David Eby says a move is not currently being considered. Romina Dea, Global News. Metro Vancouver Transit Police are turning to the public for help to identify a suspect in a sexual assault at a SkyTrain station in Surrey. It happened last summer, August 17th at 6 a.m. A woman entered the Surrey Central SkyTrain station and got on the escalator to go up to the platform with the suspect following close behind her. While on the escalator, the suspect allegedly sexually assaulted the victim. The suspect is described as 30 to 40 years old, 5'10 to 6 feet tall with a slender build. They were wearing a long, dark, wavy-haired wig, biker shorts, and a small crossbody-style bag. Transit police say investigators have spent months exhausting every possible lead and are now turning to the public for help to identify the suspect. Anyone who recognizes them is asked to call police. Calls are growing to remove mayors from the position of police board chairs. The boards are supposed to be independent and apolitical, but critics say with mayors in charge, it compromises that independence. As Catherine Urquhart reports, change could be coming soon. In November, the B.C. government suspended members of the Surrey Police Board, including Mayor Brenda Locke. An administrator was appointed as that city transitions from the RCMP to the Surrey Police Service. Then last week, Faye Whiteman suddenly resigned from the Vancouver Police Board, saying the board's structure is flawed. To have her resign over allegations that the mayor's office is improperly inserting themselves 
into in-camera meetings and influencing the board, uh, that's a very disturbing part of a pattern that we've seen with this mayor. Following her resignation, Whiteman stated, in part, the mayor chairs the police board and any direct feedback or involvement in board activity from any politically appointed individuals working in the mayor's office compromises the board. This was becoming more frequent and more direct interference was occurring. It sounds like some pretty serious allegations. We've had two resignations from the Vancouver Police Board in less than a year. Uh, there are some questions that I have that I can't get answers to as long as the mayor is the chair of the board. Reforms to the Police Act were recommended nearly two years ago, and all party committee made 11 recommendations, including that a city's mayor not serve as a police board chair. I understand there's some concern uh, in Vancouver right now. Um, the, uh, the reforms uh, are clearly needed. And, uh, and we'll be working with local governments and with police uh, and with the public in terms of the changes that are coming forward. The Solicitor General's office is, uh, is working on it right now. Legislation changing the Police Act to remove mayors from police boards is expected to come as early as the spring session. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. BC's no-fault insurance is under the microscope once again. As Travis Prasad reports, a woman who was pinned by a runaway vehicle says she's been left paying thousands of dollars out of pocket for expenses. This is the moment Gurpinder Curry's summer vacation turned into a nightmare. I got pinned between car, table and garage door. It happened last July while she was visiting family in Surrey. A driver slammed into a parked car that Curry and two others were sitting in front of. The scene, shocking. Curry's injuries, extensive. Soft tissue injuries, a hairline fracture on my leg, on my knee, on my jaw, on my cheek. Recovery is keeping her from returning to work as a daycare operator in Summerland. On top of that, she spent $12,000 of her own money, mostly for treatment of dental issues she says were caused by the crash. I got a four root canal and I don't know how many more. It's still not helping me. If it's not getting better, I have to get a transplant. But Curry says trying to get ICBC to cover the dental care is like pulling teeth. The insurance company telling her they need to verify the crash caused the tooth problems. I'm getting stressed out right now. I have a big question mark. If ICBC is denying my dental treatment, how I'm going to afford from my pocket? Curry feels ICBC's no-fault model is letting her down. She'd rather have the option to sue the driver directly and not rely on payment from the insurance company. They just want me to give up. They just wanted to drop my file from their table. That's all. That's all I feel right now. ICBC tells Global News in a statement they've funded $25,362 in medical and rehabilitation benefits for Curry, including 149 treatment sessions. Curry continues to receive funding for these treatments. Meanwhile, Curry says she needs painkillers and sleeping pills just to get a good night's rest. The uncertainty of her coverage adding to the stress of her recovery. It's not helping me to get any better. They're making my health worse. Travis Prasad, Global News. Well, you only have to look at the North Shore Mountains to see it's not a normal year for snow. It's February and the hills are mostly bare. And that's a bad sign after a period of extreme drought. And as Angela Jung reports, if summer 2024 is the same, it could affect much more than watering restrictions. 
Here at Hopcott Farms, a lot of water is needed to grow hay for animals and to harvest these cranberry fields. We use uh, the equivalent of, let's say, 130 or so Olympic-sized swimming pools a year, something like that. North Shore ski hills seeing just a skiff of snow, a glimpse of the low snowpack spelling out concerns for drought. In the last four or five years, I've, we've never seen the type of weather we've seen, uh, whether it be precipitation or just extreme. The latest Basin Snow Water Index shows Vancouver Island, the South Coast and Lower Fraser in red, meaning those regions are getting less than half of what they normally get. But snow conditions are bad across the board. This graph showing most regions are below the 10th percentile. With the snowpack so low, the drought lingering from last year and this El Nino giving guidance that it's going to be warmer temperatures than normal, the, the risk is higher for, for drought. With Mother Nature's help, things can turn around. But if they stay the course, Metro Vancouver warns, people may need to be mindful of their water consumption. If we do end up with the low snowpack and you know very little rainfall, then there is a chance that we could um, end up going into uh, like the full lawn watering restrictions like we saw last year. So this is our detention pond. So yeah, this is the water that we'll keep on reusing uh, in, ir while irrigating our fields here. Hopcott built this last year to better store the precious resource. So this would just go right into the ground. He's also found ways to innovate. If it gets a certain temperature uh, in the spring or it gets too cold, this will also tell our irrigation system to turn on. To manage water use and protect crops. You think you never go out of business because people have to eat, but it's, uh, it's, it's getting more and more... Uh, difficult every year. Angela Jung, Global News. All right, let's bring in senior meteorologist Christy Gordon for more on the seasonal forecast and what we're seeing in the long range, Christy. Sophie, this is looking at an Environment Canada product, which is a seasonal forecast. As you said, this is the temperature for February, March, and April. And you can see right across the country, expected to be above average in terms of temperature and especially across southern BC. And this is exactly what we would expect in an El Nino year. Now, when it comes to precipitation, though, there's less of a correlation or a typical for El Nino year. And you can see a lot of white on this map. That gives us an idea that Environment Canada's forecasts are also showing that they're not able to discern between whether it will be below average or above average in terms of precipitation. Does show a little patch of below average conditions for the South Coast area, but even if it goes above average, considering the fact that we are expecting above average temperatures, that doesn't necessarily mean a lot of snow. We still have a good two, three months of the snow season, so hopefully that turns around, though. Let's cross our fingers. Christy, thank you. A failed pilot refuses to take off, and now it's turned into a legal battle. Do you plan to, to leave your room here? The student dropped out of flight school, but has refused to leave the dormitory for two years. How the case just landed in court, next on the News Hour. City Council in front of the City Hall tent after the Great Fire in 1886. A major donation of photographs to the City of Vancouver archives. The challenge to catalog more than 5 million of them later on the news hour. Also, betting on blossoms, a chance to parlay your love of this springtime event into some real scientific research a little bit later. 
Right now, though, a local flight school has filed a lawsuit against a former student, saying the failed pilot is refusing to leave his student accommodations. They have tried to get the squatter to take off for more than two years, and the dispute has now landed in court. Kristen Robinson reports. Is this you? Yeah. Saif Alderain signed a student accommodation agreement to rent a suite in this home in June 2021 before enrolling in flight classes. According to the Canadian Flight Centre, which alleges he dropped out of school a week later, but continued to occupy his dorm unit. This is definitely an unprecedented situation for us. Two and a half years later, the flight school is going to court to have Saif Alderain evicted. The Residential Tenancy Act does not apply to living accommodation owned or operated by educational institutions, and the Canadian Flight Centre says their former student has gone rogue. In this case, we try to talk to the person, remind, uh, but eventually dragged out, and the person was um, not just refusing to leave, but almost barricade himself. The B.C. Supreme Court petition alleges Saif Alderain has attempted to deny others access to the dormitories. On one occasion, an employee discovered he had tampered with locks operating two outdoor access doors connected to the suite. Batteries had allegedly been removed from the locks, making them inoperable. They claim that you won't leave your suite and that you've dropped out of school. to take video. Reached Thursday, Saif Alderain declined to comment on his housing situation. They have a, a case against me. Let it be in the court. Do you plan to, to stay here? Um, the final case will be in the court. He's probably trying to hang on to cheap rent, but again, it's uh, not res uh, residential tenancy, it's reserved for the students of our school. Anna Serbanenko says Saif Alderain is paying about seven to eight hundred dollars a month, but they don't always receive full payments. It has been difficult and it, because the situation has dragged out for so long, so hopefully it will be resolved soon. Kristen Robinson, Global News. A trip to the Fort Langley Christmas market became a big headache for a Fraser Valley family dinged for a parking ticket they say they didn't deserve. They say when they tried to pay, the meters malfunctioned. But when they immediately went back to their car to move it to a different lot, they already had a ticket. Janet Brown shows us what happened next. Wes Schellenberg and his wife drove into this parking lot on Glover Road back on December 15th. After parking, Wes says the ticket machine was out of order. And he pointed out the problem to two parking lot attendants. And they said there was another one up by the street. So Wes went to the second machine to try and purchase a parking ticket. It just came up declined every time. So I tried it like three, four times. As he was walking back to his car to move it to a different parking lot. I noticed that there was a ticket on my windshield already. Um, we had only been here maybe four or five minutes. Wes says then one attendant told him not to worry about it. The one guy turned around and took the ticket off the windshield and said, oh, okay, then I'll tear it up. This is what I got in the mail. Despite being told the ticket would be torn up, Wes got a fine for $145. If we had left the lot even for 10 or 15 minutes and, and come back, yeah. And if we hadn't paid, we deserved to pay the violation. 
but we never left the lot. In a statement, Easy Park says, we have investigated parking activity for December 15th, 2023, and found no issues with the meters on site. Our contracted security enforcement team is not authorized to take back any violations once they have been issued. This would be a breach in our policy if this was communicated to the customer. We will conduct an internal investigation to ensure there is strict adherence to the process. Easy Park also says signs are posted advising of four other payment methods using mobile apps. Seniors have different levels of comfort with different things as far as technology. I'm not comfortable with that. Global News has since learned the parking lot is owned by the Fort Langley Project, started by Langley Township Mayor Eric Woodward, and the organization will be reaching out to the property management company to void the ticket. Janet Brown, Global News. Just ahead, a big promise from Pierre Polyev. The conservative leader backs a proposal that puts more power and more money directly into the hands of First Nations. Plus, what we're learning about two loud explosions at the Selkirk College campus in Nelson. The Silver King campus of Selkirk College in Nelson was evacuated today following a pair of explosions. Two blasts were heard just after 1.30 this afternoon outside the trades buildings. Fire crews and other first responders rushed to the scene and the buildings were evacuated, but luckily no one was hurt. Nelson's fire chief says two acetylene tanks caught fire, causing the explosion. Crews remain on scene, making sure it's safe. We do have one acetylene tank that uh, is got a slight either crack or hole in it. It's still doing a little bit of off-gassing. We're going to have to continue to cool and ventilate that tank until uh, it's released all its product. We're going to basically do that to maintain safety of the scene. The Silver King Trades Carpentry and Maintenance Buildings will be closed tomorrow, but the rest of the campus will be open. Federal Conservative Party leader Pierre Polyev is in B.C. today endorsing a proposal that would allow First Nations to tax companies directly when they extract resources from their lands. Keith Baldry is live in Victoria with more. Keith, the First Nations resource charge, as it's known, would be a major mm -hmm. policy shift for any government. Certainly for the federal government, Chris. So again, Pierre Poilet flying high in the polls has been criticized many times for being uh, lacking detail when it comes to actual policies and more well, criticizing the Trudeau government rather than putting forth alternatives. Today, though, a major announcement. It was in Vancouver with, with some First Nations leaders and announcing under his government the feds would get out of the way when it came to taxing companies uh, for major resource developments on lands claimed by First Nations and allow First Nations themselves to claim the taxation directly. Uh, would be a first in Canada. Here's Pierre Poilev, along with Trevor McAdahe, Chief uh, Trevor McAdahe of the Doig River Nation. This is a historic change in how First Nations governments fund their operations by allowing them to collect directly the revenues from resource projects that happen on their lands and having the federal government cede tax room for them to do it. The First Nation Regis Charge gives us an avenue for sustainable resource development with a true connection for First Nations to have with the balance between the environment and industry. It needs to be a collaborative relationship for it to work. Let's get it done.
So at the provincial government level, there's not direct taxation powers for First Nations, but there is financial agreements and substantial ones on a number of projects where the government does provide revenue for First Nations for industrial development on their lands. Not exactly how this would fit within the provincial structure, but that might come up tomorrow as we're going to be interviewing, Richard Zussman is going to be interviewing Pierre Polev on Focus BC, and that'll be running tomorrow afternoon. Look forward to that. Yeah, thanks very much, Keith. Media and telecom giant Bell has announced major job layoffs. The company is cutting 9% of its workforce. That's about 4,800 jobs. Weekday noon newscasts at all CTV stations except Toronto will end, as well as 6 p.m. and 11 p.m. newscasts on weekends, except for Toronto, Montreal and Ottawa. It's also selling off 45 of its 103 regional radio stations here in B.C., Ontario, Quebec and Atlantic Canada. And the company says it could further scale back network spending as it continues to clash with the CRTC over regulatory direction. This is the second major layoff at the company since last spring. Coming up, cries for a national crackdown on auto theft. Need to see stiffer penalties. The national summit to strike back at the thieves, with some saying new measures don't go far enough. Also, tonight's stores get caught in a bear spray sting as police try to keep it out of the hands of criminals. More and more Canadian children are at risk of going to school on an empty stomach, and it's getting harder for school nutrition programs to meet their growing need. That's why Global News is partnering with Toonies for Tummies. If you're able, please help hungry children in your community. Donate today. Politicians and police, car makers and others gathered in Ottawa today for the first ever national summit on combating car theft. Auto theft in Canada has reached a crisis point, costing insurers $1.5 billion a year. David Aiken reports on a trio of potential solutions to combat these crimes. There's an awful lot to talk about today. A first-of-its-kind summit to deal with the rapid rise of car thefts, a low-risk, high-reward criminal enterprise brought on by new technologies criminals are using to defeat anti-theft devices in modern vehicles. In a lot of cases, these vehicles are selling for double the retail value if they were sold here in Canada. The problem has also created a political headache for the Trudeau government. Ministers use the summit to boast about what they have already done done, outlawing, for example, the gadgets that criminals are using to break into cars, giving Ontario $121 million to fight the problem, and boosting the budget of the Canada Border Services Agency by $28 million. More may be coming. We'll have something to say, and I mentioned this to my friend Commissioner Duham, something to say about increased investments in the RCMP and their policing partners. The Trudeau government did boost the maximum sentence for car theft from 18 months to two years. Observers say that extra six months is no deterrent. The criminal code needs to be strengthened so that there are real consequences for vehicle thieves. We need to see stiffer penalties. And the PM himself hinted his government would act on that. We're also looking at further strengthening penalties for anyone who participates in auto theft. The summit heard that one of the most important things that can be done is more sharing of police intelligence with non-police actors, shipping companies, railroads, port operators and the like. That kind of collaboration, the experts said, is vital to stopping car theft rings. David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa.
Vancouver police are releasing details today about a sting operation targeting illegal bear spray sales. Following a spike in crimes involving bear spray, a bylaw was brought in that banned sales to minors and required retailers to maintain records of each sale. Undercover officers visited 28 stores over a two-month period to purchase bear spray and found more than one-third violated the bylaw. Fines totaling $20,000 were issued. While bear spray is legal to possess, it's being used more often to commit crimes. We were seeing more and more uh, people using them to commit robberies, uh, break and enters. And what was most concerning was youth, the youth that were bringing them to their schools, to their community centers. It's just totally not appropriate and, and there's no need for that. Between 2018 and 2022, there were close to 3,000 crimes in Vancouver involving bear spray. Police say there are signs the bylaw is working since bear spray incidents involving youth dropped 12% over the last six months of last year. In Health Matters tonight, a stem cell recruitment drive is launching at BC universities, seeking people willing to help save a life. Canadian Blood Services is looking for students between the ages of 17 and 35 to step up and have their cheeks swabbed to see if they're a match for a stem cell donation. Stem cell transplants can treat more than 80 diseases and disorders. Right now, nearly 1,000 Canadians are waiting for a stem cell transplant. The swabbing events are being held at eight BC campuses province-wide, including UBC and SFU, between now and February 16th. Still ahead, a treasure trove of Vancouver history. A major addition to the catalogue of over 7 million archived photographs depicting scenes from the city's past. Also tonight in sports, the Toronto Raptors trade that brings BC boy Kelly Olynyk back to Canada. BC is inviting Vancouver residents to be part of its climate research by predicting when cherry blossoms will bloom. And it's just in time, as some are showing themselves already. Paul Johnson reports. Here's a snapshot of our changing climate. Cherry blossoms emerging in Victoria in early February. These ones filmed Thursday on View Street. In Japan and China, we have records starting in the 900s, so we have over 1,000-year records of cherry blossoms in Asia. Cherry trees are among the species of trees that blossom before they leaf out. And in many temperate climates, they'll be the first blossoms most of us notice just at the onset of spring. That, combined with the centuries of records about them, makes them an ideal test case about the effects of climate change. And the early models show the blossoms are coming a couple of weeks early. These are two of Vancouver's most well-known cherry trees. When they're blossoming, this sidewalk will be packed with people taking pictures. So it's not happening yet, but let's take a close look here and you can see there are little incipient blossoms here. So it's not far off now. We encourage the public, researchers, scientists, people who are interested in cherry blossoms and have a little bit of time to send in models to predict the cherry blossoms. So citizen scientists, listen up. If you've got a prediction for the cherry blossom time in Vancouver or a handful of other cities, Professor Wolkovich wants to hear from you. Just look up International Cherry Blossom Prediction Competition and you could win a thousand bucks. Your theory about this ancient symbol of the arrival of spring could help scientists 
better understand the future. It is really just a way to crowdsource how to do the science better. Paul Johnson, Global News. I know it's spring when I start sneezing. <laughs> yes, and that does happen with great frequency uh, <laughs> around here. Let's not forget those plum blossoms either because they'll be popping soon too. Christy uh, is here now with a look at our weather forecast. Christy. You always bring up a good point. Uh, it's not just cherry blossoms that we get around here. It's plum blossoms as well. I have, always have a few viewers that are very quick to remind me of that. All right. This was the day out there. I wanted to start with this a shot from this morning in Tawasin. Elena, thank you so much for sharing that photo with us. As we head into tomorrow, we've got more sunshine on the way. Why am I not able to click? Oh, no. Let's try. Is it working now? There we go. Uh, the chance of rainfall is going to stay low right through the day tomorrow, although we'll see a little bit of cloud cover. It's not until Saturday afternoon does that chance of rain pop up and we are likely going to see that continue into our Sunday. So in the short term, lots of sunshine for Friday morning across the interior regions and in Metro Vancouver. This system will make its way onto the North Coast region and bring a few showers to Vancouver Island late the day Friday. But you can see much of Metro Vancouver and Southern Vancouver Island dry, although we'll see a little bit of cloud cover. As we head into the latter part of the day Saturday, though, that's when the moisture makes its way down. So it looks like soccer players will be dry in the morning, although mainly cloudy. It's not until the afternoon hours that we'll start to see that push in. Snowfall, though, for terrace temperatures right across the province have been dropped back down to near seasonal values. But at least lots of sunshine expected in through the interior regions. A little bit of cloud cover across Vancouver Island with some rainfall later in the day. But otherwise, sunny skies for Metro Vancouver. Again, Saturday afternoon is when we'll see rainfall shift in and we are expecting that rain to linger into our Sunday especially through the early part of the day Sunday and I know that the Lunar New Year parade is on Sunday so get prepared for some wet weather certainly if you're planning to head to that tonight central windows weather window coming to you from the Ellison area which is just north of Kelowna it had a fair amount of fog as you can see in cloud cover this is from this morning Carolyn thanks for sharing that photo nice winter landscape thanks very much Christy Mm -hmm. All right, Squire Barnes is at the couch with a look ahead to sports. Well, something very strange happened tonight. The Canucks lost. Wait a what? minute. Well, that doesn't happen. They never lose. Uh, the Whitecaps, mind you, had a pretty good first game of their season last night, a 1-1 draw with Tigris of Mexico. I think we did a very good performance and, you know, uh, against a very good team, to be honest. Yes, and one of the Whitecaps uh, newcomers, Demir Krylak, was the guy who got the goal for Vancouver. Also tonight. They came in um, 533 boxes. Millions of photographs from Vancouver's past added to the archives. Squire? Anybody remember that 2011 Stanley Cup run? Yeah. Was really hoping for a win tonight. <laughs> this reminded me of the 2011 Stanley Cup run <laughs> because it happened in Boston. Uh, and the dream of leaving the Bruins in ruins turned into a nightmare for the Vancouver Canucks tonight. I don't think the Bruins and Canucks have played each other when they've been at these high levels since Game 7 in 2011. But tonight's game in Boston kind of looked a lot like those games in that series that were played in Boston. Remember that? The Canucks just got wiped out every game against the Bruins in Boston that year. Everything went right for the Bruins and everything went wrong for the Canucks. Same tonight. So after 12 straight games with at least a point, Vancouver didn't even get a goal. And Thatcher Demko had his winning streak stopped just as well. 
And it started early, 32 seconds in, and it's a shorthanded goal for the Bruins. And you know who scored it? Yeah, the guy you love to hate, Brad Marchand. Gets in front of the net. Charlie Coyle with a quick pass and rebound to him. It's 1-0. And then Marchand gets JT Miller upset. A little bit of a shove here, and then watch the extra shove. Marshawn always does this, always the extra little punch or push. So that was one shorthanded goal against. Here's another one. Uh, Pedersen, you got to skate a little harder than this. That's Langley's Danton Heinen scoring to make it 2-0 for the Bruins. I don't know what it is lately with the Canucks and the shorthanded goals against, but that made it 2-zip. Then at the first minute of the second period, here's a weird one. David Pasternak stick explodes but the puck eventually gets into the net it hits Morgan Geeky then it hits Demko then it hits Tyler Myers I have to admit the Canucks have gotten a lot of bounces for them this season this one went against them and only 15 seconds later uh, Pedersen and Myers watching one guy Van Riemsdyk gets it over to Pavel Zaka and uh, that made it four to nothing so before the first minute of the second period was out, the Canucks were out. They had a chance here. This is a close call in the second period. As you can see, nothing's going in for them. Nothing went right. So off to Detroit after losing 4-0 to Boston. The Whitecaps and Tigris of Mexico put on a pretty good display last night in Langford, a one-all draw in the first game of a two-game total goal Champions Cup Series. Game two is next week in Monterey, which will not be easy for Vancouver. But all things considered, the Whitecaps play well and probably could have won this game last night. Little-headed play leading to this moment for Krylock! Opening the scoring in his Vancouver Whitecaps account in CONCACAF Champions Cup! For a team that is still technically in training camp, the Whitecaps put in an impressive performance against one of the top club teams in Mexico. The Caps created a number of quality chances offensively, had a goal called back for offside, and really should have put up more than one goal. When 38-year-old Frenchman André-Pierre Gignac rescued a point with a fantastic free kick in the 88th minute, the Caps had to settle for a draw. But it did give Vanny's side some belief they can play with Tigris. We are uh, very confident to go there and try to win in Monterrey. That's it's gonna be very hard, but that's, uh, uh, you know, I think we're up for it. And it was a home away from home game for Vancouver. BC Place wasn't available, so the Caps played this game in Langford, where 5,800 fans really did provide an audible advantage for the Caps. I really wanna thank all the people that came here today and make this environment buzzing. They made us feel like uh, we weren't away from BC Place, to be honest. So it became an opportunity to engage more people here. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm proud that tonight we were the Vancouver Island Whitecaps. Kamloops' Kelly Olynyk is coming home to Canada. He was traded to the Toronto Raptors today from the Utah Jazz. It was trade deadline day in the NBA. The Raptors will be his sixth team in over 11 years in the NBA. He's a smart guy, big man, but can shoot the three. Good guy to have on your bench. The Raps also sent guard Dennis Schrader and veteran Thad Young to Brooklyn for Spencer Dinwiddie, who they didn't drop. Uh, Canada women's basketball team playing Hungary. This is Olympic qualifying in Hungary, and 
Bridget Carlton with a three-pointer here. She had 18 points to lead Canada, which won this game 67-55. That should be enough to get Canada to the Olympics. They'll play Spain tomorrow. If they win that game, they would certainly clinch a spot in the Olympic tournament. And it's... That's Phoenix. Yes, I know. Somehow, we became Phoenix and they became Vancouver. And this is a guy who should know how to play in that weather. Nick Taylor of Abbotsford only gotten six holes because of the rain and darkness. Had three birdies, including this one at 13. He's tied for fifth right now at minus three. There you go. Well done. Thanks, Squire. A treasured trove of historic photos from Vancouver history next on the News Hour. All right, Jordan Armstrong is in the newsroom now with a look ahead to Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan? Sophie, there is concern from biologists about a parasite affecting BC's bear population. Microscopic infections have been found in dead black and grizzly bears, and the infections are being linked to a parasite first discovered in BC. 15 years ago. They cause inflammation in the bear's brain and liver. At 11, what it means for a bear's growth and behavior and what you're being asked to do if you spot a bear acting abnormally. Also tonight, when construction will finally begin on a cancer center in Kamloops. Details at 11 o'clock. Sophie? All right, thanks for that, Jordan. Okay, some say Vancouver is a young city, but a trip through the Vancouver archives shows a lot has happened in the nearly 160 years since incorporation. The transformation is fascinating, and as Jay Durant shows us on This Is BC, there's even more history to wade through now with a large donation by the city's two major newspapers. If you were to line up the boxes end-to-end, -end, there is eight kilometers of material at the Vancouver Archives, including more than seven million photographs. This is City Council in front of the City Hall tent after the Great Fire in 1886. A vast collection that nearly quadrupled after acquiring the Vancouver Sun and Province's photo negatives. They came in um, 533 boxes where you've got all these little four by five inch envelopes. And this is one of the freezers we have to preserve all the negatives. If you don't keep them very cold and very dry, you actually get a chemical reaction that looks like this. Sports photos draw a lot of public interest. Opening day at Athletic Park. For fans who want to learn some history and even offer up a bit of their own. There are fans out there who will then send us, send us lists of the names of all the players in that particular photo cars, trains, you know, your date is wrong because the license plate on the car looks like this and that license plate wasn't, you know, wasn't available. It didn't look like that until 1932. In more recent years, the archives team has been able to fill in some gaps that were missing over time. The BC Gay and Lesbian Archives, for one, that was a collection created by Ron Dutton, who collected ephemera and photographs. We've also had a couple of donations from the Chinese community, one in particular is the Paul Yifong. Um, where Paul documents um, his growing up in Chinatown. See, there's even more. <laughs> They're about 20% of the way through cataloging the newspaper's enormous collections. There is always some work to do. Digitizing important images and preserving iconic moments in Vancouver history. And I know this looks so old school. You get to do a little bit of everything and you get to learn about everything that we have here. In trying to help people find what they need, you do get to play detective. And that's a lot of fun. Jay Durant, Global News. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, make sure you send your ideas to Jay at thisisbc.com.
at globalnews.ca. We should go through our tape library. Oh, Squire's been doing mm -hmm. that. There's a lot back there. Mm -hmm. He finds all. So there's that story that Jay just did on all the photos. Uh, and you're working on one. I went down there. There's quirky as well. stuff in there, I know. too. We, we both ended up in the same place. But we have different <laughs> ideas. So they have a lot of quirky stuff in there. And uh, we will show you what that is next week. There's including a, a letter from Captain George Vancouver where he complains about his job. <laughs> Seriously. Just, yeah. just wants to go home. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's no hotel about here. Job every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, but that's next week. You're going to show yeah. us that. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. All right, Christy, final word on the weather? <laughs> yes, pardon me, everyone. Uh, so sunshine tomorrow. We certainly will see some cloud cover in the mix, but it's not until Saturday afternoon that we're expecting periods of rain. All right, and we will be at the parade on Sunday, bundled up against the rain. Yeah, trying to find something red. <laughs> and for my outerwear. That's right. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks for watching. Good night, all.